Well, why don't we pray, and then we're going to get started in on the um, on Leviticus 23. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much, God, for the joy. Lord, the joy of being in your presence. And we thank you, God, that that takes on the form, Lord, of worship. And that takes on the form, Lord, of hearing the word preached and preaching the word, God. And, Lord, so many other ways, God. But as we gather here together, Lord, we just know that you are here, God. We know, Jesus, that you are alive. And, Lord, that you are here by your Holy Spirit. And, God, that you are pleased with what's happening here. And that you are intensely invested, God, in us receiving the word tonight. And so would you come with power and would you come, God, with just the love of heaven, the love of the Father, and would you minister that to our souls tonight, God, so that we would be more um, full of comfort, that we would be more full of joy, that we would be those, Lord, who preach the gospel just in the way that we live our lives and the way that you've changed us, even without a word. We love you, and we pray for your blessing tonight, for the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Well, as we've been going through Leviticus, you know, obviously, here we are in the 23rd chapter now, and one of the things that literally I have loved the most about Leviticus, and like you, when Bo announced that we were going to go through Leviticus, I was like, huh? You know, and then I was like, oh yeah, man, there's a lot of like really cool types and shadows and copies and pictures from the book of Leviticus that find their like fulfillment in Jesus Christ, right? And so we've been seeing that for, for 23 chapters now. And what's really sweet is what we've been able to do, guys, week by week is dive into the old covenant and then see how the Lord Jesus himself is the absolute fulfillment of every promise that was ever given in the Old Testament. And so there's all of these copies and shadows and types and pictures that we find in Leviticus. And honestly, tonight, it's like, man, thank you. Where is he? Thank you, Bo, for asking me to teach tonight, bro. He's just like, man, you'll see. It's just so good. Anyway, so what we're going to look at tonight, though, is Leviticus chapter 23, And all of the types and the shadows and the copies that find their reality in the Lord Jesus Christ just come into living color, I think, in chapter 23 as we look at the um, feast of the uh, trumpets and then as we look at the Day of Atonement. So what we're going to do leading into our sermon is we're going to read, as we always do, um, all the verses that I'm going to preach. So it's 23 through 32. And then what I want to do is take a drink of my Perrier. And then we're going to flip to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to read 14 verses, okay? You guys down? All right, here we go. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. I'm in verse 24 now. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And the Lord spoke further to Moses, saying, 
Also, the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day. For it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day, check this out, shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. And then Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. First 14 verses, all right? We looked at the type. We looked at the shadow. We looked at the picture. Now we're going to look at the fullness of it. But he starts off connecting it to what we just read. Chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect For then would they not have ceased to be offered, right? If they could make them perfect, then they would cease to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins, Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, the Lord Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Amen. All right. Well, we are going to beat a hasty retreat back into Leviticus chapter 23. And the things that we just read in Numbers are going to help to inform everything that we see 
in Leviticus chapter 23. And I would tell you this, guys. As we're going through the book of Leviticus, you should be reading along with it like Hebrews 7 through 10. Like if you read it like over and over and over again, as Bo is preaching through Leviticus, it is going to make so much more sense to you. And you're going to see the sweetness of the gospel unfolded in those pages like never before. So if I was going to put a title to the sermon today, it would be spiritual rest in the atonement of Christ. Spiritual rest in the atonement of Christ. And guys, I I have this settled conviction that, that the reason why we don't enjoy and experience the kind of spiritual rest, and I'm talking about me too, that the Lord really intends for us and that like is our birthright as children of the Most High God. I really believe that the reason in our day why we're not getting it and why the gospel is not like the comfort from heaven for my soul that helps me to make sense of all of life. The reason is, is because we really overvalue and overestimate our own like innate moral like goodness, I guess. And we also overestimate our own ability along with that, like to to get her done, even spiritually. And so we lean so much on our own abilities, and what we're missing is the rest aspect of the gospel. The rest aspect of the gospel. And, And I know that we hear it here, like, constantly, as we should. Any gospel preaching church should be dripping that truth all the time, who we are in Jesus and the wonder of the gospel. And that can never get old for us, guys, because that is literally what sets us apart from the religions of the world, who, by the way, no offense, are dead in their trespasses and sins if they're not hoping in Jesus. That's the reality of the matter. But not only do we like undervalue and overestimate our, or overvalue and overestimate our own like moral and spiritual goodness and all that, but we undervalue and we really don't understand the grace of God in the gospel. And so tonight, what my prayer is, more than anything else, guys, I so desperately want you, if you don't know Jesus here tonight, or if you're in love with Jesus here tonight, I want the same thing for both of you. I want you guys to be able to step out of the shadows and into the light and to come to a deeper understanding of like the wonder of the gospel for your soul. So I want to challenge you to hear it tonight for the very first time. I've been walking with Jesus and my wife and I for like almost 30 years. But you know what? I want to hear it myself and I want her to hear it. I want you to hear it tonight as if you were hearing it for the very first time. That the wonder of the good news would blow your mind and that a joy would be infused in your soul that would take you through whatever, you know, is coming tomorrow or the next day or 10 years from now. So as we look then at the Feast of the Trumpets, um, this was, just here's some things about the Feast of the Trumpets. So this is kind of a cool thing, this Feast of the Trumpet thing. And when Bo asked me to preach this, I literally thought immediately, I went, Day of Atonement, Trumpets. I was like, yay, a party. Like the Lord's gonna be preparing his people for a party. And I kind of had it in my mind, sort of like the picture of like maybe what would happen like, tailgaters right at the Super Bowl and they're all individuals doing their thing barbecuing their brats and drinking their beers and stuff and um, 
then all of a sudden, like, their team wins. And everybody just kind of comes together, all together. They're partying already. They come together into this massive, like, fist-bumping, dancing with random people, all that kind of weird stuff, right? They're celebrating. And I kind of thought of it like that weird illustration. I'm sorry. Um, And I kind of thought of it like that. But the reality is, is that as it turns out, it's like, "Mm, not so much. Okay, the Feast of Trumpets are the pregame warm-up, so to speak. But the whole purpose of the Feast of Trumpets was that on that first day, which on the first day of every month, the trumpets got blown to let the Hebrews know that it was the first of the month. And then all of their rituals and sacrifice and stuff like that would begin over again. But on the, seventh, or on the first day of the seventh month, those trumpets were blown like all day long. They were blown and blown and longer and louder. And the whole point of it was, listen, the Day of Atonement is at hand. It's coming really soon. And, you know, it's coming really soon. And you better prepare yourself and prepare your heart for the Day of Atonement because it's like the most important day on the Hebrew religious calendar. And on that day is the one day when you are commanded to fast and, you're, and the high priest himself goes into the most holy place and makes atonement for all of our sin. So it's like so important that we prepare ourselves for it. And at the end of the day, what it's really about, guys, is coming into the immediate presence of God. That's what the whole temple was about. That's what all of those pictures were about, was God coming to his people and providing a way that they could enter into his immediate presence, like face to face, you're not going to like this, in a safe way, in a way where um, he was able to still be this holy, awesome God and interact with his not-so-holy people, all right? Thank you for Jesus, right? He's the answer. But this whole thing was about preparation for the Day of Atonement. So these horns were blown to call the people, and sometimes they were blown like for maybe like some random holy gathering or um, maybe it would be like to, even as a battle cry, or they were coronating a king or something like that, and they would blow the horn, all right? And what it meant was that this was a celebration, a time to recognize and to celebrate like the presence of God. And what they would blow is they would blow the, the shofar horn. Have any of you guys ever heard that? Like, have you heard it? It's pretty cool. I think G used to have one around here. But anyway, it's like, it's that one, Okay. And so they would blow the shofar horn, and they would also blow these um, silver horns that they had. And the whole point of it was get yourself ready to meet with your God. All right. Now, at the front end of this sermon, there's some gnarly stuff. And I just need to ask you to walk through this with me. Remember, I was the guy that was like, yay, a party. Not so much. Here's the not so much part. So this is the first time that the shofar was blown. And it was actually blown by God. And it was on the occasion, right before, God invited Moses up onto the mountain to give him the tablets of the law. All right? Uh, That's really significant. You'll see that in a minute. So let me read to you from Exodus 19. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. 
Have them wash their clothes and be ready on the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Gnarly. They are to be stoned or shot with an arrow. Not a hand is to be, don't even touch them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live who touches the mountain. Only when the ram's horn, the shofar horn, is, sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Now after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. You remember all this stuff about being ceremonially clean, right? Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. Check this out. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder. Try and like, maybe close your eyes right now. Try and picture a massive mountain, and I'm going to describe what it looked like. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. God blew the shofar horn. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God. He's like, "Mm mm-hmm, there, we're going over there. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. That made a good movie, huh? God blew the horn. And can you imagine the holy fear that was on the people of Israel at that moment? When, he, when, when Moses led them to him. Now listen, I know that in the new covenant, we've got this God who is full of love and compassion and mercy and kindness. Guess what? Same God from the Old Testament. And this Old Testament God who seems like unapproachable because of his holiness. He just seems like upset. We shouldn't view him as like a kid that's like, we kind of like push him into the corner. Now you go deal with that bad attitude, right? He responds this way because he's holy, holy, holy. And there's a point to this. The point to this is, is that he's going to give Moses the two tablets of the law. Now, the two tablets of the law are really, really significant, guys. In just like at the very start of that passage that I read there, it says that in chapter 19, verse 1, he says, tell the people that they are to be holy because I am holy. And the obvious question is, well, what does that mean? The next thing he does is he gives Moses two tablets of stone, and he says, this is how you are to live. And here's the thing, guys. When you study the law, and we don't have time to like go all through this tonight, but what you find is that the law, those Ten Commandments, are a summary of the moral standards of God. And the reason why we know that to be true is because it's not just sitting somewhere in the Old Testament, but it finds its way all the way through the New Testament, and it informs the way that we are supposed to live our lives. 
Look at Romans chapter 13, just really quick. Turn there with me. Now, none of us will um, argue the fact that the whole point of sanctification is for us to grow in the image of Christ, right? Right? Isn't that the point? So he says this in chapter 13 and verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled, what? The law. Look what he says. He's talking, now, Moses came down with two tablets, one on his left, one on his right. I'm going to guess that the one on the left was probably one through four or five, and then the one on his right was probably six through ten. So check this out. He says, you, for the commandments say this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now we may think that the, the um, old covenant law in terms of like the Ten Commandments, the moral law, is something for the Jews. But love certainly is something for all of us, right? And he's telling us that this is exactly the fulfillment of the law. And then jump down to verse 14. He tells us, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then in first, first verse 14, he says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now, when he says put on the Lord Jesus Christ, what is he saying in the context? Tell me. What's he saying? That's not a trick question. Boy, this thing's giving me fits, Bo. <laughs> Stay. All right. Um, what he's saying is, obey the law. Okay? So there's a sense in which, though Jesus has completely fulfilled the law, the law also in terms of the moral law, which is just like a summary of God's character when he says, hey, this is what it looks like to be holy. You know, and you can think of like the billions of ways that you can keep that law and the billions of ways that you can break that law. And they're all summarizing those Ten Commandments. All right, enough said. But here's the point. Here's the point. Is that number one, Jesus has fulfilled that law for us. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Look at Galatians chapter 4 in verse 1. It says this. Well, let's go to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law. Jesus was born under the law, which meant that Jesus was required to keep the law. But he came to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, one of the glorious truths of the gospel is this, guys, that even though you and I could never, ever keep the law perfectly. In fact, James 2.10 says, if you sin once against, break one commandment, you've broken them all. So the law condemns us all as needy sinners. But Jesus himself took on flesh and was born under the law. He obeyed the law on our behalf. So that when we trust him, God actually takes and credits you with the actual righteousness of Jesus Christ that he lived out in his human life upon this earth and when he swallowed up God's wrath upon that cross that's a glorious thing and so this is important and you're going to get it okay so the God blew this shofar horn and it like rocked their worlds but the whole point of it was to 
grab their attention, to show them that there was something desperately wrong, that they under-evaluated their own sinfulness and their own need for God's mercy and for God's grace. I mean, can you connect with that one? Right? I mean, how many of us before we came to Jesus, or even now, we look at ourselves, you know, and we go, oh, nah, not so bad compared to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. We compare ourselves to actually like God's standards. It's not so pretty, is it? But thank you, Jesus, that his righteousness covers us perfectly. That's a wonderful truth. So the question comes, though, for, the, for us and also for the Jews of Leviticus chapter 23. Like, how do we gain favorable access into the holy presence of the Lord? And kind of my approach tonight is going to be this, guys. You're going to hear a lot of the same things over and over again. I'll tell you why. Because we're doing it a little bit different tonight. I'm going to look at all of these truths as a diamond and as different facets of that diamond. And as you turn that diamond and as the light of the Holy Spirit shines upon it and it hits like the various um, flat spots and curves and and you know how diamonds are cut and all that kind of stuff. And it shows the brilliance of its light and beauty. I'm hoping and trusting the Lord to do that very thing. So that's one of the things that we can look at tonight. That Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law completely for us. So that there's no more to do in order for you to be right with God. If you hope in Jesus. But if we're going to gain favorable access into the holy presence of God. And I know that that's a gnarly way to put it. But when I look at like Mount Sinai burning, right, and I'm trembling, how else do you put it? There's a problem, and God needs to be dealt with on this one. You guys follow me so far? All right. So if we're going to approach God and get into his favorable uh, presence, then the first thing we need to know is this, that we need to approach God's presence through the paradox of grace. This is what I mean. The paradox of grace. What we see here in chapter 23, in, especially in the Day of Atonement, but also in the uh, trumpet blast, what we see here is that there is a celebration going on. And, I mean, if you're following me, you're kind of like, wait a minute. <laughs> a celebration? There's crap burning. There's earthquakes. There's like, God's holy, and I'm terrified now to go into his presence. But they're celebrating. You know why? Because they get, some of them got, The paradox of grace. That this is a celebration, but at the same time, they were commanded three times in ten verses to afflict your soul. And what that meant was not only like a holy fast, but like even traditionally, even today, the way that Jews celebrate Rosh Hashanah and um, Yom Kippur, that's not like a juvenile fish, Yom Kippur, sorry. Young Kippur, is to afflict their souls. And the way that they do that is by being honest about their sin, by having humility of heart, right? By keeping it real with God, by repenting and by fasting. Look at verse 27. It says this, And on the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It's a holy convocation, a holy gathering for you. You shall afflict your souls. And then in verse And then in verse 29, he says that for any person who does not afflict their soul is going to be cut off from the people. And then verse 32, he says, you shall afflict your souls. Like three, like he's really making a point here that this whole thing is about you preparing your heart to meet with your God. 
Because that's what this is about. And so when we look at the paradox of grace, it's like this. Even for those believing Jews back then who knew that there was no removal of sins by the bloodletting of bulls and goats, right? Like the ones who really were waiting for the Messiah to come and were putting their hope in a future Messiah to come, when they saw those animals being butchered and being sacrificed and atonement being made, they made the connection. They knew this is not about these bulls and goats. This is about a future Messiah who is going to provide eternal atonement for my soul. And so, yes, it was a celebration of great joy, but solemn joy, right? And isn't that so often the way that it is, even with us? It's like maybe the Holy Spirit, you know, just makes you aware of an area in your life that's just not like conforming to the image of Christ. And there's a conviction that sets in, right? And a humility that follows and a repentance and faith and then joy and gladness of heart. And people look at us and they think we're insane, You're afflicting your soul because you're worrying about looking at that or doing that or saying that. Dude, get over yourself and get on with life. But we say, no, no, no. You see, I've sinned against my God. Jesus Christ came down from above to provide a perfect way for me and atonement forevermore, right? He's put his Holy Spirit within me to conform me to the image of Christ. I don't want to live like that. Sometimes I find myself living like that in the the conflict of Romans 7, right? But the reality is, guys, is that there is a paradox of grace. The lower we go, the better we feel. That's true, right? When we're really thinking rightly. Isn't that true? I think that's true. Are you guys with me? That's very true, right? That's the paradox of grace. And it's happening here. In Leviticus 23. And so first of all, if we're going to draw near to God, we have to draw near through this paradox of grace. But we also need to draw near to him on his terms. Now, check it out. All right? So some of you I know are like in religious studies. Other of you are studying ethics. Some of you are studying whatever, sociology, or maybe um, uh, even psychology, which I'm really angry right now about psychology in our world. Or philosophy, you know, these kinds of things where with, especially with psychology and philosophy, where God is treated like that little boy, you didn't figure it out for us, you couldn't make our lives better here, you just go sit in the corner and look at the wall. We'll figure it out on our own over here. I'm mad. And so then the God, right, who created us and spoke this world into being, right, and made that little guy with his glasses who stands in your classroom like this with his uh, with his you know, quietly, and he just waits to see what the reaction of, the, of the, the crowd will be, right? Mocking Jesus as he dies upon the cross. Well, do these people, or do these religions of the world, let's just say there, let's start with that. How do the religions of the world answer this million-dollar question? How may I come into a favorable relationship with God? What do they all say? Literally, tell me, what do they say? Right? She said works. That's what they say. In one way or another, it's about me working my way through good deeds and through denying myself of evil things into the favor of God. 
But even in our text here, there's five times in ten verses where um, they are told to do no work. They are told to rest. And this is the thing, guys. Um, got off my notes. This is the thing, guys. In verse 25, it says this. You shall do no customary work. In 28, it says this. You shall do no work on that day, for it is the day of atonement. Verse 30. Whoever does any work will be cut off. Verse 31. You will do no manner of work. Verse 32. It shall be for you a solemn Sabbath rest, and you shall do no work. So the whole idea, guys, in preparation for the Day of Atonement was to embrace this one overarching reality. You cannot work your way into God's favor. And God made that so clear by telling them five times in ten verses, don't, 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 don't. You cannot make yourself right with God by changing your behavior, by making yourself better. And it's hard for us because I think like in our lives, um, the works thing resonates kind of. At least it does with me. I'll tell you why. Because I was raised in a home where literally my mom would tell me, you know, when you behave that way, I don't love you. Like my mom would tell me that. You know, uh, fast forward 20 years, I'm a firefighter and I'm working downtown at a special duty spot, right? So I have like nine to five kind of a thing. And my mom's working in City Hall South, right? And I, I come in to take her to lunch, for crying out loud. I walk in to take her out at lunch, booming over the entire office. And it's like these little cubicles, right? They're about this high and like, like massive, three times the size of this room. There's my firefighter, like just like that. I'd be like, oh my gosh. And it'd be a beautiful thing if she was celebrating her firefighter. That's not what she was doing. She was letting everybody, I love my mom. She was letting everybody know, right, that I did it right. See that one? He's a success. And so we get it like ingrained in us that this works thing is a thing. And I mean, we do it too, don't we? Like if you want to be my friend, if you want to hang with me, if you want to be part of my crew or whatever, whatever you guys use nowadays. Um... You know, you better do me right. It's, it's sick, guys. And we're all infected with this sickness. And the Lord says, put those works away and trust in me to do what you can never, ever do. Make yourself right in my sight. And so how do we make ourselves right in his sight? How? How? You get to answer this one. Yeah. What's that? Okay. Not usually a question guy when I'm preaching. What is it? Go ahead. No, no. Go for it. Mm Mm-hmm. You've got like 10 seconds to rephrase this question. Thank you. Okay, cool. So, sorry, bro. We'll get to it, though. I promise you. All right. So, we know, though, that the whole point of the gospel, right, is that we cannot make ourselves right with God. The law condemns us as sinners, right? Hopeless, no way, can't change. Anything I do is not pleasing to the Lord in that sense. But guess what? 
I have a Savior who came, and everything he did and does is pleasing to the Lord. And like one of the girls when we were praying just got this vision of like a flood coming over this place. And it's like a flood of righteousness has come over us so that there's nothing left. There's no more sin for him to judge. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Amen? Yes. Okay. So let, let's, let's press on here. So the entire Bible, though, screams the same answer. Titus says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So here's another way. We approach his presence in a manner that exalts his glory. Now we're going to get right into the temple and all that. We approach his presence, first of all, in the right location. Now the tabernacle was the place uh, that, where the presence of God would meet. First of all, with Moses in the tent of meeting. Then in the tabernacle, which is what we're reading about in chapter 23. And then in the Solomon temple, the very presence of God would come and would be there above the mercy seat within the most holy place. Now the way that the temple was set up was there was an outer court. There was, and there's a bunch of obviously religious things that, they, that are there for them, furniture and altars and stuff like that. And then when you go into, through the, through the tent, into the holy place, there are other articles for worship there. And then once a year, this is where they normally did their ministering and their sacrificing Okay. Once a year, though, they were allowed to go into the most holy place. And there was literally like a three-foot curtain that was sewn and weaved that would separate the most holy place from the holy place. And so once a year, the priest would go in, and he would go into the most holy place, and he would make atonement on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. Now, what's really beautiful is this, as we look at this aspect of the diamond. What's really beautiful is this, is that as we know, the temple is all about like the special dwelling place of God. But in the new covenant, what we find is that the fulfillment of the whole idea of the temple, the meeting place of God, is Jesus Christ himself. Do you remember what he said? He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And his disciples looked at the physical temple and they were like, Wow, that'd be a work of construction. Wow. But then after he died and rose from the dead, they got it. They're like, wow, he's the temple. But also in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says that we are his temple. Think about this. We are the special dwelling place of the Most High God by his Holy Spirit. And if you talk to Veronica, she'll say, we only just barely get what it means to live like in connection with the Holy Spirit and his leading. And then listen to this, Revelation 21, 22. This will blow your mind. But I saw no temple in the new Jerusalem in heaven, John says. For the Lord Almighty and the Lamb, Jesus, are its temple. No temple in heaven? Why? Because we're going to be in the immediate presence of God. No temple? We don't need no temple. We'll be in his immediate presence. That's a glorious thing, guys. I have to say this really quick. For those of you who maybe you're finding life to be a burden. I mean, it's finals week probably, right? I think most of you are finding life to be a burden at this moment. Maybe not over that hill. Maybe over the next, maybe, maybe over the next hill. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. 
And guess what? The next time that he blows the shofar horn, guess what's going to happen? He's coming from heaven to gather up his own. That's going to happen. So let's talk about the ark and the mercy seat. So the ark then was this acacia wood cabinet kind of a thing that contained within it the law. Those Ten Commandments that Moses had, right? They're sitting in the ark. There's also a pot of manna to remind them of God's faithful. There's also Aaron's rod, that, the staff that budded to remind them of, the, of his power. But to remind them of his perfection, the law is in that box, all right? Now, you have to be a complete knucklehead, right, to wander into the, through the holy place, right, and make your way into the most holy place and pick the lid up. That would be an idiot. You know, that guy Uzzah found that out on that day when the ark was being transported and the ox faltered and the, the cart kind of went cattywampus and the ark was going to fall and he put his hands up to steady it and God struck him dead. You may think, oh, that's not fair. Well, he should let it hit the ground because in doing that, he was presuming, right, that he could have like access apart from atonement to the very presence of God. That will not go well for anybody. So the mercy seat, though, was the actual covering that sat on top of the ark. And there were two angels that were hammered out of solid gold. And with their wings, they like covered their head because the very presence of God dwelt above the mercy seat. Now, what's, what the priest would do is he would go into the most holy place and he would literally go in with blood, the blood of a bull, and the blood of a goat, and they would let one goat go free. And I know that um, Bo covered a lot of this kind of stuff, so I'm just going to, since I'm fighting the clock, I'm just going to kind of let that go. But what he would do is he would go in there and he would um, make atonement for the sins of the people right there over the mercy seat. And it was in that place that God made atonement that he propitiated the, the sins of his people. Now, this word propitiate, let me explain that one to you. So when they took the, um, like the old original writings and they translated them into Latin, I think it was like in the 15, 14, 1300, something like that, 1200s maybe. Um, they took that term mercy seat and they literally uh, translated it as the propitiatorium or the place of propitiation. Now, the idea of propitiation, guys, is first of all a covering over sin, but it also has in view like the removal of the guilt of sin. So, when you were having your sins atoned for, they were being covered, but the guilt of your sin was being removed. Now, by listen, by guilt, I don't mean that emotion you feel when you've done something wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what happens. When you stand before a judge, right, and you got clipped for drunk driving, or you guys wouldn't do that. You might do that. Or whatever it might be, okay, you stand before that judge and he says, sorry, bud, guilty. You see the difference? The difference between a declaration and an emotion? What I'm talking about is a declaration. I'm talking about the reality of being like justly liable to be punished by God. And what happens in the atonement is he covers your sin. He takes the guilt of your sin away. That's the scapegoat, guys. Takes it away. Off into the wilderness. Where did it go? I can't see it. It's gone. But also what happens is he diverts the wrath of God away from us. 
And wrath is in God throwing a temper tantrum. It's his holy expression towards sin. Okay? He's got to respond that way because he's God. Diverting wrath away from us and to the sacrifice. And the final thing is restoring favor with God. This is what happens when atonement was made even then. And one of those ancient worshipers would look at what was happening there and they would say, that's a picture of the Messiah to come. And man, I'm trusting in that with all my heart. This is what happens for us, guys. When we look back at what Jesus did upon that cross and we say, he covered my sin. And we say, he took away the guilt of my sin. And we say, he diverted the wrath of God from me to himself. And he became a curse for me. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, right? That was a prophecy about Jesus becoming a curse for us. And he restores favor. Takes us back as his beloved children. That's a beautiful thing, huh? No wonder the gospel is good news. It's great news. It's the best news. But here's the thing. God is so majestic, holy and just, that he actually must be propitiated in order for us to have favorable access to his presence. If you heard that, you should be going like, whoa, that's gnarly. There's something about the majestic holiness and justice of God and his like antithesis to sin and being able to dwell with it and being able to dwell with it favorably that he actually needs to be like propitiated. We need to like, this sounds terrible, make up in a way. And the way that we do that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna hustle to that right now because if we're going to approach his presence, we don't just do it in the right place, through the temple, the, the, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just do it at the mercy seat where um, Jesus Christ is. And check this verse out, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, the sin coverer, the one who satisfied the curse of the law, the one who takes away my sin, diverts wrath, and makes me friends with God again. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. You see, guys, the only hope for the whole world is for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ because no man and no animal and no good works can ever propitiate God in his holiness. Only the Lord Jesus who took on flesh and who was God of very gods and died upon that cross and fulfilled the law and has brought us. Like, you know what I thought of? We were praying earlier. And have you guys ever seen um, the Pied Piper of Hamlin? Have you, raise your hand just so I know. Okay, so a few. Not many, man. Um, I think it's an oldie, but a goodie. Anyway, so it's a story about this creepy dude, the Pied Piper, and um, all the kids, I think, are being neglected by the parents, if I get it right, yeah? And so he's like, man, you're not, like, enjoying these kids, so I'm going to take them. So he gets his pipe, Pied Piper, you know? That's it, too, huh? So he plays his Pied Pipe, and they follow him away, okay? But when they come back, and to me, that is a picture of what's happening to to college kids all over this 
nation who are raised in Christian homes in the, in the, in the, in, under the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and who now are being like pied pipered away with philosophy, worldly philosophy, psychology that is not Jesus-centered. And if you're in one of those disciplines, I get it. You better make sure that you are connected deeply to Christ by faith so that you, when all that crap's coming down, you can take the good stuff and use it. And you take the bad stuff and reject it. But many people are being pied pipered away from God with that stuff. But what happens is at the end, the pied piper actually, I forget, the parents repent or whatever, but they actually let the kids come back, all right? And there's this flooding of children like running through uh, the streets and running into the town to run back to their parents. And as we were praying, I just got this picture of like Jesus going into the, the, the heavenly um, holiest of holy place, right into the presence of the Father. And after he died and was risen again, presenting his blood there for our sins forevermore to provide eternal atonement for us. And behind him is just this flood of humanity pressing through and running up onto daddy's lap. That is the picture of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us as our high priest and as our mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So we have to approach him through the right person. And of course, um, there's a picture of the high priest who would go in once a year, but Jesus in the book of Hebrews is said to be our high priest, and he meets every qualification that we need and that God requires to be our high priest. He is perfect. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says that he is without sin as our high priest. He is the one who is like the permanent high priest and he's a personal high priest. This personal aspect is so sweet because Paul said, you know, that he died for me and gave himself for me in Galatians 2, 20. And I hope, guys, that you have that sense of like me-ness with Jesus. That when he was upon that cross in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10 and 11, it says that he saw his seed, right? And I think it says he rejoiced. The point is, he saw who he was dying for upon that cross and it was pleasing to the Father. And guys, listen, it's a personal thing for us as well. So let me read you a few verses about his priesthood. It says this, Therefore in all things Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So as we approach then um, God in this way, like according to his purposes according to his ways at the right place Jesus through the right person Jesus our high priest through the right sacrifice Jesus who gave himself willingly um, that is how our sins actually get dealt with so we're going to end with Hebrews chapter 10 let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 guys I want to pick up the reading where we were and then that's exactly where we're just going to stop You guys with me so far? All right. This is going to blow your mind. I'm telling you. 
All right, so let's pick up the reading then like in verse 8. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them. They were all a picture. They were all pointing to Jesus. It wasn't about the bulls and goats, which are all offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first and he, that he might establish the second. By that we, will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says, And every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That's where he's at right now, guys, as a faithful high priest for us. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now the law tells us this is how you're to live as a regenerate person. It doesn't change. It's the moral character of God, right? But Jesus, we, again, that law all the time, if we're going to be honest, tells us that we're not making it, we're not cutting it, we're sinning, right? But what Jesus did on our behalf is he suffered and died to fulfill like that requirement of the law to take on the punishment that was due for a broken law and he lived it out perfectly for us guys so that we by just simply resting and trusting and this is the rest of the atonement part by simply resting in what jesus did for us okay by trusting like the guy let me tell the story really quick when um, we went to one fire once where um, there was a, like a one-story apartment, and as we pulled up, there was people that were meeting us in the street, and there's like, there's a guy inside there, there's a guy inside there. So we all went in and did our thing, right? Just started dragging hose lines and doing all that stuff, and there was firefighters in there as they were putting the fire out with flashlights trying to find this guy. And out of the smoke came this hand, and it just went boom. And he grabbed the firefighter's arm in desperation. And in that moment, he took him and he brought him out. And the paramedics went to work on him. As far as I know, the guy lived. Okay? Here's the point. All right? If we, in our desperate need, even as Christians, guys, we need to live in this place of, like, desperate need for Jesus. And we reach out to him. And we lay hold of him as the only means to save us, right? And the only means also to clear our conscience of the guilt of sin like those Hebrews had. What happened to them is that year by year they were reminded that there was still a Savior who was coming and that it wasn't yet. And so every single year they had to do, go through that. But Jesus cleans us from that so that when we look to him and trust in him, we no longer need to feel like things aren't right. We should feel at rest. And so I hope you see through this that theology and doctrine is not some dry thing that doesn't matter. We're talking about truth here. And I'm saying if you just cling to this with all your heart, the Lord's going to work something sweet and beautiful in your heart by His Holy Spirit. And the things, guys, that everyone around you is groping after to satisfy their lives and to get meaning and to make themselves feel important, that just cancels out. And you're like, you know what? It's all about Jesus. 
And if I can hope and trust in him, and I have this me thing going on with him by his Holy Spirit because of what he has done for me eternally, making me right with God, that does something to your conscience that just says, here, have a seat. Have a glass of lemonade. Just relax here. You're like, everybody else is like stressing out in the heat. And the Lord's like, you're my child. Here. Calmate. And that's honestly what he wants for each and every one of us. So here's just a word of application. Let me just say this. There was a day when Jesus was walking on the road and there was a blind guy there, Bartimaeus. And um, Bartimaeus was in desperate need. And as he heard that Jesus was coming, and of course he had heard about all of the wonderful things that Jesus had did and that he was the Messiah. As Jesus was walking on the road, Bartimaeus began to cry out. He said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And all the crowd around him says, shh, 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 don't bother the master. And you know what he did? He cried all the louder. He was not going to be hindered from laying hold of Jesus that day. And some of the most amazing words in the Bible come next. Because Jesus is walking, and when he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me, it says that Jesus stood still. And he turned around, and he saw this poor, desperate man in all of his need, and he said, Son, What would you have me to do for you? Jesus is here. He is here every bit and every realist when he was that day when he asked that question of Bartimaeus. And today, he asked that question of you. What would you have me to do for you? Do you need to get saved? What would you have me to do for you? Is there a sin in your life, guys, that that the Lord's put his finger on tonight? You just know you need to... Like, cough that up and get right. It's not that if you don't, you're going to go to hell or anything like that. We have eternal salvation. What would you have me to do for you? What would the motivation of love in your heart for Jesus tonight have you do? What would you have him do for you? Father, we just want to thank you, God, just for your word. And I want to thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, as now we um, just want to look to you, God, and Lord, we just want to answer, Lord, whatever it would be that you would have us to do today in response, Lord, to um, what we've heard. And Jesus, more than anything else, though, Lord, I pray for a Sabbath rest of souls tonight, God, to rest in you, to rest in all that you've done, to rest in all that you've accomplished. And Lord, that there would be a flood of joy to enter this place, God, as we worship you now. We love and praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.